Well, if there's one thing that 2020 has taught us, it is that it is incredibly hard to know who and what to believe. Um, I mean, and I'm, I'm talking on everything, even beyond can the SEC play defense. I'm talking all the way from who to believe about politics, who to believe about our health, who to believe about our economy, who to believe about our beliefs, and who to believe about is that person really a member of our families or not. The crazy part about 2020 is that I just don't think there is ever a time in at least my lifetime, and I'm going to probably say most of your lifetimes as well, that there's been so many narratives being fed at us at the same time through so many information streams, and depending upon a number that you type into your TV or what website you might visit or not visit, you just don't know what to believe. It's crazy. And even a trip to the grocery store reminded me of this uh, a couple of weeks ago. Number one, I'm the worst grocery shopper on the planet. Um, I'm just going to tell you that right now. I just need to confess that out loud. If you send me to the grocery store with a list, the list means nothing at that point. It is A, am I hungry? Uh, B, what have I not eaten in a long time that looks good at the moment? And what's buy one, get one free? That's my only shopping rules of any rules. Well, I was at the grocery store a couple of weeks ago, uh, actually not this week, but last week, and and I, I got the, the four items, because if you ask me more than that, like I said, it's done and I'm coming home with a bucket of chicken. I mean, that's it. I'm telling you right now from Publix. So I'm in the line, I'm waiting to check out, and, and I'm standing there, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, there is this moment that just grabs me. And you know the moment that I'm talking about. It's the moment that after you put your stuff on the little magical little train that just stops right at that moment it needs to, you look up and what do you see? You see what the news is not telling you is what you see in that very moment. Some of you know what I'm talking about, the tabloids. Uh, the tabloids are my favorite. I'm just going to confess this. You can judge me hard if you want to, but look, it's a multi-billion dollar industry. I ain't the only one. The tabloids are my favorite part of the grocery store, and it's everything I can do not to just subscribe right there. I'm just going to be, I'm going to confess. I know you think less of me at this very moment, but it's not about who's marrying who. I like the good ones. I mean, I like the ones that you, that, that they need to tell us about this stuff. A couple of them I wrote down the other day. Uh, here's one. Alien mummy goes on the rampage. <laughs> I didn't hear this. Did y'all? Uh, I need to know when this is happening. Here's a second one. This one made me just laugh. Woman gives birth to a two-year-old baby that walks and talks at three days. They're on to something. If I could have done that, I might have had another kid. Uh, that's all I know. Uh, here, here was my favorite a couple weeks ago. Uh, <laughs> this is good. Vegan vampire attacks tree. Uh, can you just imagine? Let that one sink in just for a minute for those of you that are uh, down that train. <laughs> Transylvania is like, give me some pine. Uh, there it is. Uh, and finally, this, this one, let's get close to being biblical, but not really. Eve was nothing more than a space alien. Uh, I love that. The mother of our planet. There it is. Uh, but, but here's the thing. There, there really is so many truth claims 
There's so many claims, and it used to be if you put something in writing, it meant something. It used to be if it hit TV, you're like, well, maybe that I should follow that. But there's so many things about life that we're having to filter right now of what is truth and what is not truth and which narrative should I jump into and which one should I just laugh at and shake my head? What animal should I be riding on? What color should I be wearing? Where should my family be worshiping? Or heck, should we be worshiping at all. I mean, let's just call it what it is. There's so many truths that are out there. In fact, about once a year, a book comes out, and you'll notice this. About once a year, some book or some Discovery Channel news show comes out about some long-lost discovery of Jesus that somebody tripped over somewhere, somewhere around this planet. And the fact is, they're bestsellers because people are starved for truth. People are starved for knowledge, and they have trouble filtering out because there's so many streams coming at us. What is real and what is not? What is truth and what is not? How should I be living and how should I not be living? Here's the thing. This is no new phenomenon. It's not new. And I know some of us are thinking, well, yeah, it is, Matt. The last nine months, it's new. It is not a new thing. In fact, this letter that we're studying together of 2 Peter... A huge portion of this letter is dealing with this idea, what is it that I should believe and how can I actually live that belief out? So we're looking at this ancient document that's over 2,000 years old, and it is absolutely written to debunk the tabloids and the news all at one time. And the apostle Peter says, hey, let me just give you what is truth. So Peter answers these questions. How do I know what is truth? How do I know how to live out this truth? Last week we introduced this letter and we said that this letter is written by an older Peter. This is after he walked with Jesus. This is later in his life. And, and we said that it's down toward the end of his life. And Peter has already written 1 Peter because that's why it's named 1 Peter. And, and a couple of years later he came up and he wrote 2 Peter to say, hey, I told you there was some struggles coming. And now he's going, they're here. They're on us and they're with us. And he writes this letter to the church that is scattered, that is, that is scared, that is all over the Roman Empire, that's living under just some incredible persecution, incredible pain. And, and he looks at the people and he just reminds them that, hey, your salvation, we talked about this last week, is based on a gift from God. It is a gift salvation. He has made it available for you. He has sealed you in his name. And at the moment, here it is, that you give your life to Jesus you are his forever. He told us this this week in the first 11 verses. But then he continued to tell us because of that, you need to live your faith out. You need to walk your faith out. You need to take the gift and you need to exercise the promises that are inside that gift. Because we've been given these promises of grace. We've been given these promises of peace. And we've been given these promises of if we will take our salvation, we said last week, and step through the marks of what we looked at last week, then we will begin to see our faith grow. We'll begin to see that. But I want to remind you of the context that he wrote this letter in because it's important. The context is a lot different than it is today. Here's the thing. The Roman Empire did not have the words, in God we trust, on their money. They had Caesar on their money. 
They had Caesar. And so when we begin to kind of, kind of put our plight at the same level as these Christians are dealing with, there's really no comparison. Because when, when these people that Peter is writing to, when they stood up for the name of Jesus, the reality is they were taking their life into their own hands. Because when you claimed that Jesus was Lord, it wasn't the fact that you just might lose a drinking buddy, all right? It wasn't the fact that you just might need to get off the, off the drugs. It was the fact that when you said Jesus was Lord, at that moment, you were saying that Caesar was not Lord, and you were putting your life in your own hands. And the government was coming up against you. So we're literally looking at a group of people that are incredibly, incredibly persecuted. And he's looking at these people that culture didn't want anything to do with. The government didn't even want anything to do with them. But also, even inside the church. Listen to this. When Peter wrote this letter, he was writing it to debunk a lot of false teaching that was going on Inside the church, there was a group, and, and this is not really important what the name is, but if you just want it here, there was a group called the Gnostics. Um, and, and basically, that's just a real fancy word that just really means in the know. There was a group that claimed to be in the know um, that was spreading these false teachings in the church and saying that it really didn't matter what you did with Jesus. It really didn't matter what you believed about the resurrection, and it really didn't matter what you were putting your faith into, that the only way they were saying inside the church that you, church that you can be saved is to have a special revelation of knowledge and a special revelation of truth. And they were spreading this inside the church. So think about these people that we're looking at right here. I mean, think about the, 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 the pain that they're going through. Their culture doesn't like them. Their government is suppressing them. And even inside their church families, they're dealing with this idea of, I just don't know what to believe anymore. Here's what I know. That was some of your Saturday mornings. And these guys were in this moment, and Peter steps up as the elder statesman in this moment and says, look, through my life and through my example and through some bold instruction, here's what Peter does. He cuts through the noise. He cuts through the noise of all these different streams of information. You know the crazy thing about noise is that most of us live such a noisy life that when it gets quiet, it starts to bother us. The, the thing about noise is, is that we live such a, such a life that is receiving so many things around us. When the moment of just quietness comes up, we're like, what's wrong? <laughs> what's going on? Peter looks at all the noise that's going on in the culture and the church and all this place. He looked at these people and he's like, hey, let me give you the truth. Let me show you what verse 10 we looked at last week of how you can confirm your calling and how you can know that you're walking out this faith that has given us. So here's what we're going to do this morning. I want to give you the four marks that Peter gives right here in these next verses. I didn't make them up or just in the verse. I didn't kind of pick specific things. I just want to follow the text this morning because here's what Peter does. He says, from my life, from my experience, and from my time walking with Jesus, let me give you what it looks like to walk the life of the disciple. Because here's what I know about some of us. We grew up in churches that we might have met the Lord. We might have given our life to Jesus. They may have even baptized us and gave us a certificate that has our name on it. But that was the end of what it looks like. Of Here's what and how I can walk walk out my faith and look like a true disciple. So here's what I want you to do this morning. When I give you these four, I just want you to ask yourself for the rest of this week, I'm going to give you your homework on the front end, right? I want you to ask yourself for the rest of this week, how am I measuring up? 
Not for my faith, right? I don't want you to do that. We don't work for our salvation. We work out of our salvation. But how am I measuring up? And we're going to pick up right where we left off last week. Left off, we did, we did verse 11. We're going to go to verse 12 this week. Pick up from there because we find the first two that he gives us just through looking at Peter's life. Let's read it together. First Peter, or Second Peter, sorry. Chapter 1, verse 12 says this. So I will always remind you of these things. You say, Matt, what things are you talking about? Read the first 11 verses. Even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. Now, pause right there for a minute. Leave that verse up. Promise you we're not going to stop this much. Here's what that means. That means he's given people like me and people like you that teach the Bible permission to say the same thing over and over and over and over again until we finally do it. All right? That's what he's saying. Look at this, verse 13. I think it's right to refresh your memory as long as I live in this tent of the body. Because I know that I, he's talking about himself, will put it aside soon. As our Lord Christ Jesus has made clear to me. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. Now, what is Peter doing? Peter's saying, after I've given you the message that Jesus is the gift, he's gifted us salvation, now, if you want to show that Jesus is in your life, if you want to show that Jesus is working in your life, if you want to show that Jesus has changed you, he says, number one, you need to live with eternity in mind. Live with eternity in mind. Now, what does that mean? That means that we should live in such a life That the affairs of this life should never consume more of us than the affairs of the next life. That's what that means. Now, this is hard. I'm not not claiming I have the market on this one. I struggle on this one. Why? Because most of us have been taught our whole lives that everything matters in life is, is like right now. Right? We're taught, like, seize the day, carpe diem, right now is the moment. Everything that matters is like right now. Do everything right now. But if you're looking at the Bible, the Bible is concerned with the right now, but it says this, your right now will always figure itself out if your gaze is on eternity. That's what he's saying. But we don't do this, do we? We don't do this because we're taught from the time we're born all the way up, not, not really like with words, but just by actions that so much of this life is about me producing in this moment how somebody else wants me to produce rather than what God wants me to produce. But I want you to see what Peter says right here because it's incredible because Peter's looking at us and he's saying to us right here that eternity matters. In fact, he's saying to us, this, this, this is life, it is really temporary. It's just a temporary blip on the, on, the, on the eternal scale. But how many mornings do we wake up going, man, God, I'm just really glad you gave me this moment because this might be the last moment until I enter into the next moment. That's what Peter's saying right here. In fact, look at verse 13. I love it how he says it. He says this, I think it's right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent, or you might want to circle that word tent, in the tent of this body. Now, I love this language of the body being a tent. I love it. Why? Because here's the question. What are tents good for? (laughs) To which half of you went, nothing. All right? I get that. All right? I feel that a little bit. All right? I do. But the reality is, by definition, a tent, catch this, it's nothing more than a temporary structure to get you through to where you're going. 
Now let that language just settle in for a minute. Let that language settle in. Peter is looking at his life right here, and he's going, hey, listen, I'm just in a tent of a body. What's he saying? He says, hey, I may be living in this thing right now, this little suit of flesh that I got going, maybe okay at the moment, but this is not my eternity. This is not where I'm going to spend the rest of my life. Notice Peter, he never calls his body a castle. He never calls his body godly. He never calls his body his eternal dwelling dwelling place, all right? There's a whole lot in that. All he's saying is, look, this thing right here that I got going on, where I'm at right now, this is extremely temporary in the light of eternity. Therefore, I'm going to live with my gaze on the eternity. Now, look, when we live with our gaze on eternity, it changes things for us. Why? Because those things that really and truly matter in the decision moments, the now decisions versus the eternal decisions are rarely the same. They're rarely the same. Say, Matt, what are you talking about? Think back through how many times in your life where you have really blown it. Were you thinking now or were you thinking eternity? Now you see where he's going. He keeps going to verse 14. He says, because I know that I will soon put it aside. In other words, I know that I will soon put this tent down. I'm out of this place. As the Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me, he kind of goes into two levels of conversation here. He knows naturally Peter confirms what we all know. Listen, I got news for you. You're not going to live forever, all right? After the fall in Genesis, that game was over with. There's only two options for you on this planet. Number one, you die, all right? You die. I know it's like, ooh, Matt, thanks. Well, it's true, all right? Or number two, Jesus doesn't tarry any longer. We'll see that later on in the book. And he comes back. That's it. You have a 100% rate of not entering the rest of this earth for eternity. I mean, how it is now. That is just how it is, right? So what is he saying? He's saying to all of us right here, hey, I know that I'm going to die. But he's also saying, I know specifically I'm going to die soon. And now, I just want you to see this because it's just really cool sometimes how the web of the Bible goes together. John chapter 21, Peter has denied Jesus at, at the, at the crucifixion. In other words, he had said, no, I don't know that guy over there. But then after Jesus rose from the dead, he reinstates Peter. But I want you to just hear what Jesus says to Peter right here. He says this in John 21. He says, very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself. He's talking to Peter. And you went where you wanted to go. But when you were old, this is Jesus telling Peter what's going to happen in his life. This is scary. You will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. It's a little bit confusing, but here's what that means. That means that, Peter, you're going to do what you want to early in life. You're going to go where you want to. You're going to live out your calling. But there's going to be a time in your life you're going to end up being persecuted in prison, putting your hands out and having chains put on you and being led to your death. You say, Matt, how do you know? We'll read verse 19. Jesus said this to him to indicate the kind of death in which Peter would glorify God in. And then he said to him, follow me. So what is Peter doing here? Peter is living out this calling in his life that he knows that he's going to die for his faith at some point. He knows that he's a follower of Jesus, but he's living with eternity in mind because he's not ready to give up yet. He's not ready to just hang it up yet. Peter, his whole life has shown that he walks with Jesus, that he loves Jesus, that he knows Jesus. And now he comes down to the end of his life and he's still pointing towards making an eternal difference. I love what C.S. Lewis put about this. He says this. C.S. Lewis says, It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. He says this, Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. 
That's what Peter's saying right here. He's just echoing what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6. Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth, right? What did he say? Where moths and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourself treasure in heaven, where moths and vermin don't destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, Jesus says, there will your heart be. I love this idea in Peter's mind that he is still gazing towards eternity. Still encouraging us not to look at this thing as a temporary, I mean, not to look at this thing as a solidified eternal body, but to say, hey, I'm going to do everything I can in this tent right now. I'm going to put it aside to glorify God in my life. Here's a question that's been all over me this week. If you were to take, if you were to take this week, like every day this week, all the way till next Sunday morning, and if you were to log your eternal activities versus your earthly activities, where would they fall? Where would they fall? Would it be close? I mean, would it even be in the running? Or would you, and, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not kind of pressing in on the hard, I'm just saying this, would there be very much to show in the eternal category even? That's what he's saying right here. This thing is just temporary. We've got to get out of the temporal and move towards the eternal, number one. But number two, he says this, not only do we live with eternity as a goal, Peter says if you're going to be a true disciple, you've got to live to leave a godly legacy. You've got to live in order to leave a godly legacy. Now remember Peter. He's, he's about 70-ish years old. We won't argue over a few years. But that's about where he's at in this. He has walked with Jesus. He has led the church. He has preached at Pentecost. He has, I mean, church history shows that he was incredibly active from the time of the ascension to the time where we are right now. Also, just kind of side note, Peter was the firsthand witness that Mark used to write his gospel. That's where we get a lot of Mark's gospel from was Peter's kind of dealings with Jesus. And now we find Peter at the end of his life realizing that he probably should just He'd be getting his earthly affairs in honor, just kind of getting things straight, talking to the family, but he doesn't do it. He draws back, and listen to what he says in verse 15. He says, and I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. Now, that's an incredible line there. I love that he used this words after my departure, because here's what he's done for me, and here's what he's done for you. He said it's not just about us dying that we need to live a legacy. It's about every conversation that we're in that we need to live a godly legacy. You see, when we read this, we're filtering it through, gosh, he's about to die. He's about to die. He's about to remove himself from the tent. Well, there's a double application here that challenges me and you to, here's the thing, in every relationship that you have, at the moment that you step out of the conversation or out of the relationship or out of the work group or out of the friend group or out of the phone call, are you leaving a godly legacy or are you leaving a legacy of destruction in your wake? That's what he's saying. So here's the question. When we post, when we talk, when we ask people things, are we doing it with an eternal mindset to leave a godly legacy? Or are we just driving some earthly stake in the ground and making a wake behind us? I love what this means to Peter. Peter's saying, hey, I'm going to write these things down. I'm going to write these things down. I've been telling you this for 30 years, but now I'm going to write it down so that when I leave, you still have a legacy to follow after I leave. And did he accomplish this? Yes. That's not a rhetorical question. He did. How do we know? What are we doing right now? We're looking at what he wrote down 2,000 years later. 
What an example. What a godly legacy that this guy that knew he was about to die, he's still living it. He's writing it down. You say, well, Matt, that's just, that's Peter. Come on, we're never going to get to that stage in life. Here's what I'm going to tell you, and I need you to listen really closely to me in this. You're going to be remembered for something. Everybody in this room is going to remember you. Your friend group, your people, your family, they're going to remember you for something. What is it going to be? I mean, is it going to be, oh, man, thanks, they really passed down just a little money to me, or, wow, look at that, now I get the lake house. Or is it going to be, that guy, he showed me what it looked like to walk with Jesus. Listen, this week, um, we lost an incredible legacy liver in this church. Incredible. And, and you know her. You don't know that you know her, but you know her. Her, her, her name was Miss Effie Hartsog. Miss Effie was the lady that sat at one of the two tables out here in the lobby every single Wednesday night with oxygen on, taking up your money if you were a Wednesday night supper person. Miss Effie hadn't been a member of this church very long. She's been here about eight years. And, and, and here's the deal. As she progressed in her body, just given up on her, her only desire was how can I continue to serve? How can I continue to encourage other people? And how can I not be a burden on other people? That's a legacy. That, that's the things that we know about Miss, Miss Edie. But, but let me tell you the things that we don't know about Miss Edie that I learned this week that blew me away. Miss Edie has lived a generational life of missions. A long time ago, she decided that something in her heart was calling her into missions, and she ended up in South Vietnam. She ended up in South Vietnam as a single lady living the life of a missionary in South Vietnam, teaching children and leading them in the name of Jesus. She did that for years until one day something came up in the org structure and it wasn't available anymore and she wanted to move back to the States, but she couldn't move back to the States because something inside of her called her to go become missionary, a missionary or a nanny to missions families all over the world. And she went first to Canada and lived in Canada for a couple years, ministering to missions families and then in the afternoons doing evangelism. She lived there for a couple years and did that and moved down to Costa Rica and lived for the next year years of her life in Costa Rica, living that same lifestyle, going, I don't know why, but God has called me to live this moment and this lifestyle in my life. If that wasn't enough, God stirred in her heart something different after that, and she ended up being called to move her whole life to the country of Albania. Albania, for years, for years, Miss Effie moved to Albania, and catch this, her one goal in life was to do two things. She taught kindergarten in the morning to introduce these kids to the name of Jesus. And she taught English as a second language in the afternoon and in the evening so that she could have conversations about the name of Jesus in a country that would not let that happen. Wouldn't let it happen. When her, when her body began to fail her, she knew that she had to move back. She moved back to Georgia. She moved back into this area. And from that point forward, that lady sat at that desk out there and served in the only way she can. But here's the deal. She was successful in that, but she was also successful on this earth. She was an Ethan Allen designer. She was an Ethan Allen designer, interior designer. But here's the deal. At her funeral this week. Are we going to remember Miss Effie because she could pick out a velvet couch? Are we going to remember her because of the thousands of kids that are now going to walk into eternity because of what she did? That's the point that he's making here. He's making the point that if we're going to say we're a disciple, let's live a legacy of godliness. Let's live a life. The question I've got for you is this where your life is right now? Is this where it is? 
Live with eternity is the goal. Live to, make, to, to, to live a godly legacy when you leave. And, and, then, and then number three, Peter gets extremely practical here. I love this. And he gives us two of what I think are the most central truths. And I'm going to read them to you because some of it's going to be a little bit of review. Verse 16, hold on, I'm reading a lot of verses. It says, for we, this is Peter talking, did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came from him in the majestic glory, saying, this is my son in whom I love and with him I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from the heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. Put your finger right there. What is he talking about? He's talking about the transfiguration. We just spent a whole series beating that dead horse. I mean, for weeks we talked about what that means, right? He's going back to it and he's saying, we were there, we saw it, and we experienced it. Don't you love how the Bible all goes together? Look at verse 19. We also have the prophetic messages. That's the Old Testament. As something that is completely reliable. And you will do well to pay attention to it. That's a message for the day. As the light shining in the dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, he says, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture. Or in other words, the Bible did not come about by the prophet's own interpretation of these things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though they were human, they spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, that's a lot. I mean, that's like a whole fall right there. But here's what it says. Peter looks at the believers all around him, and he goes, I know there's a lot of noise. I know there's a lot going on. I know a lot is happening. But look, if you're setting your minds in a direction to live a godly life, and you're setting your minds to live a life of legacy, he says, number three, you need to live in a way that is fully trusting in the word of God. You need to live. Peter says it right here. You need to live fully trusting God's word. And if there's two things that you're going to hear every single week in this church as long as I'm here, it's number one, Jesus loves you, Jesus desires you, he wants a relationship with you, and he wants to give you eternal life through a relationship with him. But number two, you're going to hear, please fall in love with the word of God. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying in this message right here. It can and it will change you. I love how Tozer says it. He says, the word of God, well understood and religiously obeyed, is the shortest route to spiritual spiritual perfection. What is Peter doing in these verses? I know it's a lot of verses, but let me just draw it down to a couple things. Because Peter is given a defense of the Bible. He's given a defense of the New Testament, the letters. He's given a defense of the Old Testament. And he's teaching us that we as believers can stand behind the word of God on way more than just saying that you got to have faith. You gotta have faith because God can promise you something. When you begin to step out into culture and when you begin to talk about the Word of God, people are not gonna hold it at the same level of respect that you do. I promise you this. And when that happens, Peter is saying that you not only need to trust the Word of God, but you've gotta have a trust in it that has some backing on it that is more than just this idea, well, I just got faith that it's God's Word. That's not good enough. So what Peter does is he gives us three quick qualities that makes the Bible significant and what makes the Bible distinct. He gives us three. I want to give them to you real fast. And number one, he says the Bible is not a myth. It was written by eyewitnesses. The Bible is not a myth. It was written by eyewitnesses. Look at verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and power. 
but we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. What does that mean? That means this, this idea of cleverly divided stories. If you take that and kind of boil it down in Greek, you can always have one word for every three English words. It really just means myth. For we didn't follow myths. And here's the thing about Roman civilization and Greek civilization. They loved a good myth. But Peter's saying, look, people are going to tell you all the time that this book that you have in your hand is just a myth. And I got news for you. People are going to say that to you now. People are going to say all the time that this thing is just a legend. It's just a collection of funny stories or earthly events. But Peter goes, no, they weren't that. It's not that. And then in the text, it kind of shows us how it can't be that by saying, I mean, first of all, that this book hasn't had time to become a legend. You realize when Peter is saying this that there were still people on this planet that were healed by Jesus? You realize there were people and members of these families that he's talking to that still watched people that were dead rise, still watched Jesus ascend, still saw Jesus' resurrected body. And he's going, hey, these le- if something's going to be a legend, it has to have time to grow, right? I mean, that fish has to grow over time when you're telling the story. Paul Bunyan's axe has to get bigger and bigger. I mean, the Iliad, the Odyssey, uh, Beowulf, all of these things that we're looking at now in our, in our, um, our lit classes in Hayton, I'm, well, if you're English teacher, you love them. Nobody else does. But here's, when we're looking at things, those, those are myth. That's mythology. He's saying this is not a myth. Why? There's too many details. The, the king of the story or the, or the protagonist of the story, that guy suffers, and that never happens in myths. He died and came back. That never happens in myths. There's too many places and too many times, too many things that can be confirmed. You're getting the point, right? He's saying this is not a myth. Not a myth. And then he goes on to say, we were also, we were eyewitnesses to this. If you notice, the first four verses that we read this morning were all in the I, right? They're all singular. But now what does is, what is Peter swap to? He says what? We. What is he doing? He's roping the other disciples in with him. He's bringing them in saying, we were there. Confirm it. It's not a myth by eyewitnesses. But look at this. Number two, the Bible's significant because the ultimate author of the Bible is God, not man. The ultimate author of the Bible, college students, high school students, listen to me. Man did not write the Bible. Man did not write the Bible. Look at verse 21. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God when they were carried along by the Spirit. What does that mean? The Bible is not a book from man. It is 100% the word that has been inspired by God. Therefore, it is inerrant. A lot in that sentence, but here's what it means. It means that God gave these guys the message. Well, Matt, how did he give them the message? Did they wake up one morning and their hand was out of control? It's like, give me a piece of paper. No, that's not how it happened. I've never heard anybody talk about this before. That's not how it happened. Did they wake up one morning and it was just written on their tablet? No, that's not it. Did they wake up one morning and there was a voice from the cloud speaking down so they could hear it? No, that's not how it happened. How it happened is, is that God used some people that were already traveling in a godly way. He heightened their senses to hear his word. God used their experiences and used their personalities and used their family structures and God gave them word. Listen, this is important. Word by word. Every single verbal word that is written in this book that we have in our hands. That's why it's important not to skip words. That's why it's important to not just take a verse and go, no, I don't like that one. I'm just going to leave it. Why? Because God didn't just give these people a thought to expand on. Some people will say that. He gave them the message. 
the every single word, and he inspired them. Therefore, it's inerrant. What does that mean? That means you cannot take a word from the Bible and it is not true. You can't take a sentence and go, that's out of here. You can't take an Old Testament and say, that's not a big deal anymore. You can't do that. It's inspired. It's inerrant. And that's not popular news today. I I, I promise you I'm going to get somebody go, well, Matt. No, there's no well, Matt. It's not myth, and it's from God. That's all it is. There's so much. We could do it all morning. Keep going. Number three, we're never getting home. Number three, look at this. He says the central message of the Bible is this divine announcement about Jesus. You can boil all the Bible down, in other words, to this, Jesus. That's it. It ain't about you. I know we try to make it about us. But the Bible's Jesus. How, how do we know? The Old Testament, what does it do? It points to Jesus. The New Testament letters, what are they doing? Pointing to how we walk about Jesus. The, the Gospels, what are they doing? Telling us a story about Jesus. So when we look at the Bible, what makes it distinct? Not myth, eyewitnesses. From God, not man. And what is it? It's all about Jesus. Verse 16, we told you about the coming of what? The Lord Jesus Christ in power. Verse 19, you will do well to pay attention to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. What is that? No time for it, but that is Jesus. When he comes back to this earth, he's called the morning star. And we're waiting and we're tarrying until that happens. Therefore, here's the principle. The principle is the Bible is the standard in which we should judge everything else. Everything else. Here's not the principle. Matt, I take my life and then I interpret the Bible. You say, man, I would never do that. Oh, yeah, you would. <laughs> you would. Here's why I know. You know the people that have a problem with the Bible calling adultery adultery? It's the people that are in adultery. Does that make sense? The people that have a problem with certain parts of the Bible are always the people that are not living that part of the Bible. So what are they doing? They're taking their context and they're taking their life and then they're beginning to filter that into the Bible. That's the wrong direction. It never goes that way. The Bible always is the truth and filters to our life. Therefore, college students, when you decide to move in with your boyfriend, girlfriend, when you decide to get drunk every night of the weekend, and when you decide to sleep around and do whatever you want to, listen, the Bible's still the Bible, and you're wrong. You're wrong. And it's not about culture. It's just not. When you decide that you're done with your marriage, you don't get to change that part of the Bible. When you decide your family's not worth it, you don't get to change that. All right, we got to keep going. But just it's important for us to see it is the standard. He says, if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, trust the word of God. And when you trust the word of God, what does it do? It changes you. Number one, live his eternity. Number two, live to have a godly legacy. Number three, submit. I mean, number three, what do we do? We live as the Bible, fully trusting in it. And number four, I love this one, live fully submitted to the leading of the Holy Spirit. We're fully submitted. Now, we're not going to spend much time on this. We're going to land right here. But this is, this is what he's saying right here. He's saying there needs to be a point in our life where we just say yes. Where we just say yes. And Matt, what, what do you mean by that? There needs to, be, needs to be points in our lives where every morning when we wake up and we crack open our word, before we crack open the word, we pre, pre-say the word. Yes. Well, Matt, what if I don't know what he's going to call me to? That's the point. What if I don't know what he's going to ask of me? That's the point. Look at verse 21. Look at the last line we read in verse 21. They were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 
That, that's a nautical word in the Greek, and it literally means this. That the, those who wrote the Bible, those who follow Christ, those that are true disciples of the word, what do they do? They put their sail in the air. This is what it means. And the wind takes them where it needs to take them. I got news for you as we leave this morning. Here's the deal. The winds of grace and peace that he offers us, that Jesus offers us as a promise, are always blowing. The question is, will we submit to the Lord Jesus and just say yes? Just say yes. Well, Matt, what if I don't know what it's going to do to my family? It doesn't matter because we have to trust. What if I don't know how this is going to work out? It doesn't matter. We have to trust. Our answer is yes. Yes, Lord. For what? I don't know. I don't know. That's the point here, right? What is Peter saying? He's saying, man, there's, there's a lot of stuff coming. I don't know what that stuff that's coming is going to come. But here's the deal. Yes, Lord, is the answer. So as we close this morning, here's my question to you. Has there been a moment in your life where you've said yes, even to invite the Holy Spirit in your life? So Matt, what does that mean? That means that you weren't born a Christian. That means that just because you went to vacation Bible school and got the ribbon doesn't give you eternal life with the Father. There has to be a point in your life where you turn from your sins and you turn to Jesus and you just say, yes, I'm yours. Is that you today? Is there something in your spirit that just says that's today? Because if it is, listen, you can settle that right now just by going, Lord, I need you. Earlier we mentioned that if you'll just text this word next here's what we do every single week we walk through every one of these responses we make appointments personally and we walk how it looks to live that next step of your life as a believer in Christ or a member of this church here's the deal if you need to give your life to Jesus here's what I need you to do take out your phone right now and just text next to that and we'll walk you through and we'll get back with you this week on what that looks like Matt I'm just not sure go for it Matt I don't know where I'm at in my faith Go for it. That's what that number is for. You don't have to walk down here. You don't have to do anything like crazy. We're not going to ask you to run around the building or anything. It's just you going, I need to know. Text that. Here's the second question. As we get ready to worship for a couple minutes this morning, here's what I want to tell you. Which one of these four this week do you need to tackle first? Which one? Because I know there's one that's sticking out. Which one is it? Lord Jesus, as we worship in this moment, God, I pray that your spirit begins to press into us. Where is it that we need to take a next step in becoming a disciple of you? Not a church person, a disciple. And God, as we stand at your throne, as we tremble in your presence, as we lift up you, Jesus, today we're giving you permission to show us what it looks like to live for eternity. Show us what it looks like to live a godly leg, leave a godly legacy. Show us what it looks like to fully trust in your word and have it change us. And God, show us what it looks like just to say yes. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Let's stand and sing together.